It's the 29th of March on theconstantinvestor.com. I'm James Brandis and I'm speaking with TCI community member Peter McGee. Peter, you've come to investment through your work, haven't you? Can you give us your CV? You began as a chartered accountant, is that right? Yeah, that's right, James. I worked with KPMG originally for some time here and overseas. I then had a stint in investment banking. Um, in terms of becoming an investor, my next step was to work for a, a private investment firm which syndicated investments for high net worth investors. And at that firm, I also invested personally in the ventures that uh, we were developing. Later, I joined Telstra, working in the mergers and acquisitions team. <clears throat> and I was based in Hong Kong for about five years. And Telstra had a number of very successful investments in Chinese internet businesses during that time, and I too invested in Chinese internet stocks. So you're quite right that my investing's been connected to the work I've done, but I think I've then explored it further and developed you know, my own style and approach. And most recently, I'm working as a consultant on mergers and acquisition projects, and I still get to spend time on investing as well. So what did you learn from working with high net worth individuals? Did you pick up any investing tips from them? Yeah, I think it was fascinating on, on a few fronts. Um, one thing I thought was interesting was we worked on a particular project which was the rollout of a retail food business. And we would have investors come into our office and sit at the table and we'd talk through the investment proposition and they would ask a series of questions. Now, let's say you've got 50 you know, very smart, accomplished people come in the room. It's interesting just to see what types of questions they ask and what are the questions you find are the most penetrating ones. And I think the ones that really stood out were you simply ask about the unit economics of a business and simply try and drill down on how many units does that mean you will make, over how many hours do you do that, what's your throughput, what's the point of maximum productivity and lowest, et cetera, and just focusing on that type of element to get a sense of the business's prospects. And it was probably only a minority of people that had that focus, but I thought those were really the investors that uh, – were most astute in appraising a proposition. So they cut out all of the other noise and they just focused on the main thing that the company was doing and their ability to reduce costs and increase revenues? I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, to look at it from a financial perspective, and but particularly in terms of, you know, what can this business possibly achieve, what's realistic, etc. But again, to go back to units and say, how much could you produce in an hour, at what price, etc. And just you know, carry out a sense check as well on any good proposition because you, you rightly say cut out the noise because when you look at investments, there's so many d different dimensions you can consider, you know, the strategic part of it, the people involved, etc. But I think that's a very powerful element, that piece of it. Have you managed to apply that uh, approach to any of your investments? I, I think so, yeah. I think you always want to be conscious of what's the size of the market in any investment you look at as a starting point. You know, what's the potential... What does that mean in terms of market share? Because when you look at a business and you're trying to ascertain what their revenue and expense base will look like over time, the expense base is a lot easier, I think, to forecast. It's the revenue that's much harder to predict. And you always want to have a quest check and say, well, what is the size of the market, the growth of the market? If they say revenue is growing at 10%, yet the market's growing at 5 clearly that means we're growing market share. Is that feasible? How are you taking it from competitors and so on? You know, I think those type of... Uh, um, <clears throat> ways of looking at the business are really critical. 
And what about when you were living in Hong Kong? Did that give you a different perspective on investing, that act of living overseas? Yeah, I think, I think it's a good point. It widens your knowledge. What, what's interesting is on that front that at different times, I think you'd be you know, well aware of this yourself, a lot of Chinese businesses are stigmatised as you know, questionable um, managerial capability and practices and so on. And because in my work, I was seeing these companies firsthand and meeting with some very high quality management teams, I came to see that you could identify companies in China which had you know, good ways of doing business and were very investable. And um, once I had that confidence, of course, I could go on and invest. And when I say investing in Chinese companies, these are ones that are listed in the US market, either on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And so they've gone through a process where they've done an IPO and um, gone through a full uh, prospectus process and, and listing, which is quite an onerous you know, exercise for the companies to do. So what did you look for in a Chinese company? Can you let us in on some of the insights yeah. that you picked up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was generally looking for high growth. Um, you found some fascinating businesses over there. I mean, just as you see uh, leaders in the internet space in Australia, in real estate, in jobs, um, in cars, then the same is true in China. So you could find businesses that were number one in their particular space and had huge growth already. And when we talk about market size before, just vast market size potential. And um, so those were the ones that I'd sought to invest on. You know, they were already number ones in their marketplace. And I think, you know, the concept that people would frequently think about is, is just the networking effect in internet businesses where once you have more traffic to a site and you have more content on that site, then it just creates a virtuous circle which repeats itself. You know, once more people put their uh, cars for sale on a particular site and then you get more traffic and, and so on it goes. So that creates a competitive advantage for the business. And generally, you know, you would always want to see that a business you're investing in has competitive advantage in, you know, in terms of how I approach the market at least. And what's your view on investing in China now? Um, I'm glad you asked that follow-up because maybe I can offer you a, a qualifying kind of perspective, which is that, you know, more recently, because I've had more flexibility um, with my time, I was able to fly to China and meet with companies, meet with management teams and ask them my own questions and gauge things much more directly than I had in the past. And it was interesting that I think I got to a point where I could really ask the uh, suitable questions to be asking. And in, on the US markets, they report quarterly. And you'd have a perspective where you felt confident in you know, how the business was going. All of a sudden, the quarterly results are released and the revenue doesn't look anything like you thought. You know, there's a material deterioration. And then you'd speak to the management team again and said, how is this possible? You know, based on what you discussed, I thought everything was fine. And there'd always be 10 reasons why that's so. And what I came to find is, you know, to the extent you want to invest directly in a given stock, ideally you have a much broader perspective than the individual company. You understand the value chain, for example, and you've had some contact with competitors and suppliers to the business. And just give you much better cross-reference about the merits of a particular company and, you know, another perspective on the representations a company would make to you. So... You know, from there, I came to find that uh, I would be better placed to invest in managed funds because when you find equity fund managers, when they can do this full time with a few people on their team, they can get those types of insights where they see the entire value chain. So that was the kind of next leg of the journey for me was 
looking at managed funds in the Australian marketplace and finding ones that I thought were good uh, investments. So what's your investment portfolio look like today? Today I'm invested in some commercial property and a couple of unlisted funds, which is produces a good income stream. And um, I would invest in those a few years ago. So they've got capital growth as well, which is a brilliant combination to have. Um, I've also invested in a number of equity managed funds. And then I've invested in some individual stocks as well. But the in case of the individual stocks is a bit rarer. And again, I'm, I'm trying to find isolated cases where I think the business is really exceptional and it's got you know, excellent long-time prospects. How do you um, evaluate those unlisted real estate funds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question, James. Um, yeah, I, I found it was fascinating to look at as many as I could in the Australian marketplace. And you'd find there was huge variety in terms of the risk return profile. So say a yield was 8% for a particular fund. If you look at enough, you could find that there's quite a few offering a similar type of yield, but the risk profile would be quite different in, the, in terms of the quality of the tenant, the duration of the lease, and those types of attributes. And so you're obviously looking to uh, minimize risk for the given level of return you obtain. And you know, hopefully there's some growth potential as well. You also find a lot of variety on the fee structures because like uh, managed funds for equities, they're charging you a entry point fee and they're charging you a performance fee. And in some cases, the performance fees can be extremely high. And if you can find another product offering that doesn't have exorbitant performance fees, you're obviously much better placed. And I think the other interesting lesson with the commercial property funds is looking at what happens when you invest your funds in the first instance. Because typically a building's just been acquired and you're going to receive a partial interest in that building, but there'll be a variety of costs involved. Your stamp duty is another one, oh, this one, and then you've got the uh, acquisition fees from the fund manager. And you can find that, let's say you put in $100, on day one it's worth $90, for example, of net tangible asset value based on those very costs you've already incurred. And you've got to be very cognizant of that when you're thinking what are the long-term returns look like because you're actually starting with a base of negative 10 or $90 relative to your 100. So it's those type of dimensions that you find um, will look very different from one fund to the next and you want to evaluate carefully. Yeah, it seems uh, a little bit complicated. I know there's a bit of information on the Constant Investor website under the unlisted gems, which highlights some of those complications but makes it almost seem a little bit daunting to, to get into that area. Yeah, like I do think you need to invest a reasonable amount of time if you want to do that personally. And you would certainly want to go and meet the managers, but at least to have looked at a few funds as well and seen um, how they compare, not to look at ones in isolation. And potentially if you do it, you know, you might do it across a few funds. And I think, you know, it is important to say that these funds are unlisted and so you don't have liquidity. And so you've got to be satisfied that the fund might be saying, that this is a seven-year investment period and obviously you won't see liquidity in that time and you've got to be confident that that asset <clears throat> can sustain um, itself you know, over that seven-year period, notwithstanding you might see some economic upheaval over that period. So you've, you've got to think things through carefully and believe that your risk is relatively well managed. 
And onto your equities, David Blake recently dropped Innate Immunotherapeutics and he replaced it with MicroX, which is a company you suggested for Alan to explore on The Constant Investor. Where did you hear about MicroX and, and what were your first thoughts on that company? Uh, MicroX is, is yeah, a company I've invested in and, and you're quite right, I did um, uh, highlight it for Alan and then fortunately David Blake, as you say, coincidentally a week or two later he highlighted as well. So. Yeah, I was pleased to see that he got to speak to their CEO and, and feature that. Um, I'm, I know a couple of the directors involved because I happen to have worked with them in the past. So one of my former colleagues in investment banking is director on the board and another colleague that I actually uh, went to school with as well is also on the board. So that always helps to know some of the people involved and it just means I've followed the company closely and, um, and done a lot of reading on the business and, and feel very positive about its prospects. Now, again, that's a case where you have a business which they're developing a miniaturized X-ray machine and they've got significant competitive advantage and it's protected by patents. And so for me, that can be very powerful. Not only can they generate good returns in the future, but it's defensible. They're about to start selling their first X-rays in May or June this year, apparently. How closely are you watching the company at the moment? Oh, I watch it as close as I can, but I think... You mainly want to be uh, focused on the fact that how's the business place long term. You know, you prefer to have investments where you don't have to follow them day to day, and you just feel very confident in their long term propositions, and then you sleep well, and and you know that over time uh, things should work out well for you financially, because you can have you know, short term movements which don't necessarily reflect the underlying economics of the business. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm very positive on the investment, but equally I think you need to see it first from a long-term perspective before you think about the shorter-term dynamics. Peter, you're clearly a well-informed investor. Have you read mm. any books that you recommend to people to uh, that, that you keep coming back to as good books on investing? Yeah, I've read plenty. I love reading on books. I always think you can learn from reading um, about other investors. One that I find really fascinating is called The Outsiders. It's, it's got a long title. It's eight unconventional CEOs and their radically rational blueprint for success. It's a book by a US author who looked at the most successful CEOs in the US and um, described their characteristics. And they measure their success of these companies they, or CEOs they identified from their return on investment for shareholders. And they found that they do share a few attributes, which was uh, fascinating to see. Um, one of which was typically they would have a decentralised management system where they put decision-making for operations down into the divisions of the business. And the other which is the CEO would retain responsibility for allocation of capital. And for example, um, identifying M&A projects and when to execute them and undertaking share buybacks when shares were at low prices relative to their true value. And what you see is these types of CEOs are just fundamentally focused on the return on investment for the company. And that's what results in the best outcomes for investors. And also being CEOs who are contrarian and prepared to be patient and are probably not investing in 2007 when the market was at heady levels, but rather in 2009 when you know valuations were extremely uh, favorable. Oh, that sounds like a good one. I'll check it out. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Peter, what's your major motivation for investing? What's your investment goal? I think I look at it a couple of fronts, one of which is just to build some independence for the future and 
And to do that, I've found it's better if you do it in a structured way and have a target. And maybe, for example, you could say I'd like to generate a 10% compound growth rate on my investments. More is always better, but it typically comes with more risk. But, but something like that, and then you can start to hopefully plan for the future and also you know, have a sense of how you can achieve that. So have a plan, I think, is, is really valuable. And the other feature is do it, you know, hopefully because you enjoy it. And I certainly enjoy investing. I find it fascinating and read as much as I can and appreciate being a subscriber to The Constant Investor and listening to the regular updates from Alan and yourself. That's great, Peter. Thanks for sharing your story yeah. on the Community Catch-Up. Yeah, thanks very much for your time, James. Peter McGee is a member of the Constant Investor community and this is theconstantinvestor.com.